Hello friends and welcome to this edition of the Sioux City Journal for Monday, January 16th, 2023. Reader today is Dave Sauerman and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service for the Blind and Handicapped. Our first story comes to us from Sioux City. A Sioux City man has been charged with first degree murder after a woman was shot and killed on the north side on Saturday night. At 9.41 p.m. Saturday, Sioux City police officers were dispatched to 3319 Nebraska Street for a reported disturbance between a man and a woman. The woman was pleading for help, according to a press release from the Sioux City Police. According to a criminal complaint filed in the case, the victim, Sarah Zoli, called 911 and said her boyfriend, Austin Sleff, was pointing a gun at her during the call. A 911 dispatcher heard a sound consistent with a gunshot on the phone, according to the complaint. Self then picked up the phone and said to the dispatcher, I shot her. On arrival, officers found Zoli suffering a gunshot wound and still holding a six-month-old child in her arms. A four-year-old and a five-year-old were also in the house, according to the criminal complaint. Zoli was pronounced dead at a local hospital. Self, 23, of Sioux City, was booked into the Woodbury County Jail on charges of first-degree murder and three counts of child endangerment. And here is the Woodbury County report before Judge Patrick Tott. Josephine Marie Saul, age 24, Sioux City, secondary theft, she was sentenced January 12th to five years in prison. Nicholas Ryan Parker, age 24, from Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, was sentenced January 12th to five years in prison. Sarah Jo Saososhi, age 33, from Sioux City, possession of a controlled substance, third offense, sentenced January 9th, a deferred judgment, three years probation. Before Judge James Dane, uh, Emiliar Felix Gabriel, age 49, from Sioux City, enticing a minor, sentenced January 9th to five years in prison, suspended, three years probation. And before Judge Stephen Andresen, Victor Hugo Chavez, age 42, from Sioux City, failure to appear, operating a vehicle without owner's consent, uh, sentenced January 11th to 150 days in jail. Our next story, one person is dead after the vehicle they were driving in collided head-on with a semi-trailer on Interstate 80 near Durant in Cedar County early Saturday, according to the Iowa State Patrol. According to the crash report submitted by Iowa State Patrol Sergeant Sean Helton, a 2020 Honda passenger car was traveling eastbound in the westbound lanes of Interstate 80 near Marmarker 277. The Honda struck head-on a westbound 2014 Kenworth semi-trailer driven by Stuart Anderson, 65 years of age from Northwood, Iowa. The semi-trailer is owned by FedEx Freight Incorporated of Harrison, Arkansas. Both vehicles came to rest in the median. Helton's report does not indicate if Anderson suffered any industries, or excuse me, injuries as a result of the crash. 
The name of the deceased driver of the Honda was not released on Saturday pending notification of the family. Our next story, pipelines take to courts to gain access for surveys. Denied access to survey from some parcels of land along proposed liquid carbon dioxide pipeline routes, developers have sought rulings from Iowa judges ordering landowners to allow the surveys to proceed. New lawsuits in Clay and Sioux counties were filed in December, bringing the total number to nine, filed by either Summit Carbon Solutions or Navigator Heartland Greenway. In all cases, the companies are seeking injunctions to prohibit landowners from denying survey crews entrance to their land to study the proposed pipeline routes. Landowners have filed counterclaims in many of them, arguing that Iowa's laws giving pipeline companies the right of entry to private land to survey and examine it are unconstitutional. Both are tactics seldom seen before in Iowa. State law clearly authorizes enforcement of survey access by a company by injunction, according to Don Tormley, a spokesman for Iowa Utilities Board, which receives and rules on permanent applications for underground pipelines. However, to the IUB's knowledge, lawsuits by pipeline companies to gain access to landowners' property to survey have been rare in the past. If a landowner resists surveying, the issue is usually addressed without litigation, Tormey said. Tormey said the IUB has no information on the number of landowners refusing to let surveyors onto their land, either now or during past pipeline projects. He said the length of the proposed CO2 pipelines and the large number of landowners affected may be a factor. Navigator plans to build a 1,300-mile pipeline collecting liquid CO2 from ethanol plants and fertilizer processors in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and Illinois, and transport it to a site in Illinois where it will be injected deep beneath the surface. The pipeline would stretch 900 miles across 36 Iowa counties, including several in Siouxland. Summit's plans call for a 2,000-mile pipeline collecting CO2 from ethanol plants in Iowa, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota, and North Dakota, and piping it to a North Dakota injection site. Of the 30 Iowa counties in the route, many again are in Siouxland. Permit applications for both are before the IUB, or the Iowa Utilities Board. Both projects have staunch opponents, evidenced by landowners' unwillingness to allow surveyors on their property. Navigator filed lawsuits against landowners in Woodbury, Clay, and Butler counties in August. Summit sued in Dixon County, Hardin, and Kasuth counties in September, and Clay and Sioux counties on December 15th. In those lawsuits and requests for injunctions, Summit says landowners have refused to accept delivery of a second letter providing notice of the intent to enter their property to survey it. While Summit Carbon Solutions is not able to comment on the specifics of pending litigation, it's important to note the overwhelming majority of survey work done to this point has involved the owner voluntarily offering the company permission to access their land. There have been a limited number of instances 
where Iowa law has been invoked to allow this critical work to continue, Summit said in a statement. Elizabeth Burns Thompson, Navigator's Vice President of Government and Public Affairs, also noted the majority of landowners have granted surveyors access. What we don't hear about this is how much survey work was done voluntarily, she said. Surveys are an incredibly important part of the process. We think the code and the law is pretty clear as to notification and the steps to complete that survey. We truly want to be collaborative and follow the letter of the law. Landowners who are resisting have banded together, hiring lawyers and coordinating their opposition. It's likely due in part to experience with the Dakota Access oil pipeline, which was completed in 2017 and traverses many of the same counties in the paths of the proposed CO2 pipelines, according to Jess Manzur, Conservation Program Coordinator of the Sierra Club chapter in Iowa. In many cases, crop yield losses because of soil disruption from pipeline installation has been greater than what farmers were told to expect by Dakota Access, and payments from the company have not made up for the losses. With that information in hand, farmers are less likely to willingly give permission to their land disturbed, much less surveyed, Mazur said. Everyone is prepared this time. And they're saying not again, she said. The filing of lawsuits, however, caught opponents by surprise, Mazur said, but it has solidified opposition too. It just made people upset and even more steadfast in their opposition, she said. If they're really just going to sue anyone who gets in their way, what kind of business practice is that? And do we want those kind of companies in Iowa? Vicki and William Holes of Moville were sued by Navigator in August after refusing to allow surveyors onto their land in northern Woodbury County. They responded with the claim that Iowa's laws giving pipelines the right to enter their land are unconstitutional. A judge in September denied Navigator's request for an injunction that would have enabled surveyors to enter Hulsol's land. A trial is scheduled for February 14, though that same judge is considering Navigator's motion for summary judgment, seeking a ruling in its favor before trial. A trial in Navigator's lawsuit against Martin Koenig of Sioux Rapids is scheduled for April 19th in Clay County. The Butler County cases were consolidated and scheduled for trial in May. Vicki Hulse told the journal last fall that she and other landowners are doing what they believe is right, and they want others to know they're not powerless against the pipeline companies. I just want to be an example that you can stand up for yourself, Hulse said. You can stand up and say, no, this is my land. Summit's lawsuits have yet to be scheduled for trial. Dennis and Carrie King of Dickens in Clay County and the Wilmer Holstein Revocable Trust in Sioux Center in Sioux County have yet to respond to the lawsuits. Our next story, an ex-Wynot teacher pled guilty of attempted child enticement. <clears throat> A former Wynot Nebraska teacher pled guilty Friday of propositioning a 14-year-old girl for sex. Andrew Heller, age 39, of Sergeant Bluff, entered his plea in U.S. District Court in Sioux City 
to one count of attempted enticement of a minor. He also had been charged with one count of attempted human trafficking. That charge may be dismissed as part of a plea agreement which was filed under seal. According to court documents, FBI investigators had been monitoring communications between Heller and the 14-year-old in which Heller asked her for sex and offered her $200. When Heller was arrested on July 14th, authorities found him in possession of alcoholic beverages meant to be shared with the girl, a box of condoms, and more than $200 in cash. During an interview with authorities after his arrest, Heller admitted he knew the girl was 14 and said he had intended to pay her for sex. After his arrest, Heller was fired from his job as a social studies teacher at Why Not Public Schools. And here is the Siouxland five-day forecast uh, for today. A touch of snow and rain at times. Winds out of the northwest at 10 to 20 miles per hour and a high of 39 degrees. Tonight, breezy with rain or snow showers. Windy uh, out of the west-northwest, 12 to 25 miles per hour, a low of 28 degrees. On Thursday, breezy and colder with low clouds. Uh, wind out of the northwest, 12 to 25 miles per hour, a high of 30 degrees on Tuesday, a low of 24. On Wednesday, it remains cloudy. Winds out of the north-northeast, 8 to 16 miles an hour, a high of 32, a low of 26. On Thursday, mostly cloudy with a little bit of snow. Winds out of the northwest at 7 to 14 miles an hour, a high of 30 degrees on Thursday and a low of 17. And on Friday, mostly cloudy. Winds out of the west at 7 to 14 miles an hour and a high of 29 degrees on Friday and a low of 17 degrees. The normal high for this date 29 degrees, the normal low 10. The record for this date was 64 degrees set in 2006. The record low 20 degrees below zero set in 2009. And here are some brief items from around the nation and the world. In Los Angeles, more rain and snow fell during the weekend in storm-battered California, making travel dangerous and prompting new evacuation orders. Over flooding concerns along a swollen river in or near Sacramento, bands of thunderstorms with gusty winds started Saturday in the north and spread south with yet another atmospheric river storm following close behind Sunday, the National Weather Service said. Up to two inches of rain was predicted for the saturated Sacramento Valley, where residents of semi-rural Wilton, home to about 5,000 people were ordered to evacuate as the Kasumens River continued to rise. Gusty winds and up to three feet of snow were expected in the Sierra Nevada, where the Weather Service warned of hazardous driving conditions. In uh, Berlin, police clear out anti-coal activists. A village in western Germany that is due to be demolished to make way for a coal mine expansion has been cleared of activists apart from a pair who remained hooded up in a tunnel, according to police. The operation to evict climate activists who flocked to the site in the hamlet of 
Lutherzah, L-U-E-T-Z-E-R-A-T-H, Lutherzah, <laughs> kicked off Wednesday morning and progressed steadily over the following days. Police cleared the people out of farm buildings, the few remaining houses, and a few dozen makeshift constructions such as tree houses. On Saturday, thousands of people demonstrated nearby against the eviction and the planned expansion of the Guatweiler coal mine. There were standoffs with police as some protesters tried to reach the village, which is now fenced off and the mine. Environmentalists say bulldozing the village to expand the Grotweiler mine would result in huge amounts of greenhouse gases emissions. The government and the utility company, RWE, argue the coal is needed to ensure Germany's energy security. From Britain, a drive-by shooting in central London wounded two children and four women, according to police, on Sunday. A seven-year-old girl remained hospitalized Sunday with a life-threatening injury, and a 12-year-old girl sustained a leg injury in the Saturday afternoon shooting, according to police. In Puerto Rico, they announced Sunday that it plans to privatize electricity generation, which is a first for the U.S. territory, factoring chronic power outages as it struggles to rebuild a crumbling electrical grid. In France, the Paris Prosecutor's Office opened a judicial investigation Sunday into attempted murders after seven people were injured with a sharp metallic hook at a crowded Paris train station. The suspect was shot and wounded by police during Wednesday's attack. Paris Prosecutor Laurie Bachou said that her office asked for the suspect to be detained pending further investigation. And in the Middle East, Israeli troops shot and killed a Palestinian man in the occupied West Bank on Sunday following a struggle at a military checkpoint. The Palestinian Health Ministry said the latest death in a months-long spiral of violence between Israelis and Palestinians. In the Congo, a suspected extremist attack Sunday at a church in western, excuse me, eastern Congo killed at least 10 people and wounded more than three dozen, according to the country's army. A group linked to Islamic extremists was suspected of being responsible for a bomb that went off in the Pentecostal church in the north Kivu province town of Kasindi, according to a military spokesperson by the name of Anthony Mawalushki. And finally, in Egypt, an Egyptian court on Sunday handed down life prison sentences to 38 people, including a self-exiled businessman whose social media posts helped spark anti-government protests in September of 2019. Our next story, state senators appear poised to ask Nebraska voters to extend legislative term limits. Forty state senators have signed on to a proposal, a constitutional amendment, that would allow lawmakers to serve a third consecutive four-year term in the legislature. The proposal, uh, LR22CA, from Senator Robert Dover of Norfolk, Nebraska, which has the support of senators from both sides of the political aisle, 
carries more than enough support to appear on the 2024 general election ballot. Dover, who was appointed to fill the District 19 legislative seat vacated by Representative Michael Flood last summer, said the idea emerged from discussions with legislative staff, lobbyists, and current and former senators. To a person, they said, term limits took away from the consistency at the Capitol and that it was not a good thing. Dover said in a phone interview, that's why I brought it forward, to fix something that needs to be fixed. If approved by voters, the measure would extend the time a senator could serve consecutively from eight years to 12 years, an extension several lawmakers have said would result in better legislative outcomes over time. Dover said new senators find themselves drinking from a fire hose as they seek to learn how the unicameral system works, get acquainted with other lawmakers, and dive into the subject areas that they will be wrestling with on legislative committees. Other senators have said that eight years is not enough time to get some pieces of legislation across the finish line. Bills can get crowded out in busy legislative sessions and they need to come back the next year. Sometimes it can take several years for support to build behind some issues or it takes the right relationships between senators or interested groups to strike compromise on language that can be supported. Dover said he understands term limits are very popular among the electorate, especially in Nebraska, but said he believes there's a case to be made for lengthening the time senators can represent their constituents in Lincoln. I think extending it one term would help resolve that issue, he said. 39 other senators co-signed the constitutional amendment well above the number needed to evade a filibuster and put the measure before voters. Dover said he was not surprised to find the support this year. I was actually surprised. I didn't have a few more people sign on, he said. There was not anyone who said term limits were good. Nebraskans long tried to put term limits in place for state and federal office holders, but were not successful until the year 2000 when Initiative 415, which specifically targeted the legislature, was approved by voters on a 56 to 44 percent split. The first class of 20 state senators forced out because of term limits, left office in 2006, with 16 more following in 2008. More and more have been pushed out of office every two years since then, including 13 at the end of 2022. While the provision for term limits in the state constitution prohibits senators from serving more than two consecutive terms, a handful of legislators have returned to the Capitol after sitting out one or more terms. Omaha Senator Ernie Chambers won two more terms in the legislature beginning in 2013 before he was term limited a second time. He was followed by Senator Steve Lathrop in 2019. Beginning in 2021, more senators returned to the body. Senators Ray Aguilar of Grand Island and Mike Flood of Norfolk and the late Rich Fowles of Omaha. Lincoln Senator Daniel Conrad became the first senator from the capital city to return to the legislature after first being term limited in 2012, 
She won a fourth term last year to represent District 46. Omaha Senator Justin Wayne sponsored a similar constitutional amendment extending the consecutive terms a senator could serve from two to three, but that measure failed to advance. Dover said he thinks more senators will join the effort as it works its way through the legislative process this year and as the matter goes to the public for approval. I think the representation will be more effective and when you're effective you get things taken care of for your district and make the process work more efficiently, he said. Our next story, a Sioux City man is currently being treated for life-threatening injuries at a Sioux City hospital after police say he was stabbed multiple times before 6 a.m. Saturday at the 2700 block of Floyd Boulevard. According to the Sioux City Police, a man matching the description of a possible suspect was found at 10 a.m. in the 1500 block of 23rd Street. Francisco J. Tapia, a 25-year-old Remsen man, was arrested and booked into the Woodbury County Jail for attempted murder, willful injury causing serious injury, assault, while participating in a felon uh, going armed with intent, possession of a controlled substance, criminal trespass, and criminal mischief. As of now, police have said they are not releasing the victim's name in the case. You are listening to the Sioux City Journal on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service on, um, uh, I apologize, on January 16th, 2023. Your reader today is Dave Sarman, and it is time for us to turn to the obituaries. John Adams, age uh, John Adams, John S. Adams, Jr., 71 years of age, passed away Monday, January 9th, in Sioux City. Services will be held at a later date. Christy Smith Funeral Home, Morningside Chapel, is assisting the family with arrangements. John was born November 11, 1951, in Winchester, Kansas. He grew up in Lawrence, Kansas. He spent 16 years in the United States Navy. He worked at naval shipyards for more than 30 years. He is survived by his wife, Suzanne Hawthorne Adams of Sioux City, and many other relatives and friends. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the American Red Cross. Our next obituary, Christine Ann Ayers, age 62 of Sioux City, passed away unexpectedly at her home on Wednesday, January 11th. Massive Christian burial will be held at 10 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday at St. Boniface Catholic Church in Sioux City with Father Andrew Gales officiating. Burial will follow at the Calvary Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel with family present at 6 p.m. and a vigil at 7 p.m. Christine was born February 14, 1960 in Sioux City the daughter of Robert and Diane Rose Bachman. Christine graduated from West High School in Sioux City in 1978. In February of 1980, she married Mark Ayers Sr. in Sioux City, and they were blessed with two children, Melanie and Mark. Christine had a very strong and dedicated work ethic, 
and had been employed at numerous jobs, including floral designer at Vans Florist, office service manager at Gateway, office supervisor for Labor Ready, and office manager at Carroll Supply Company, all in the Sioux City area. Although Christine always showed her professional demeanor at work, she was known for her exuberant personality with children and friends. She prided herself in the art of baking, well known for her chocolate chip cookies, and always tried to treat everyone to their favorite dessert. Her love for vacationing in Okoboji with her family was well known and always her highlight event each year. Christine is survived by her two children, Melanie, Katie Dockin, Ayers, and Mark Ayers Jr. Her brother, Patrick Bachman, and Penny, nephew Alex Huber, and many aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. Christine was preceded in death by her parents, Robert and Diane Bachman, sister Rebecca Beamsdurfer, and her brother Brian Bachman. Our next obituary, Melissa May Clarkson, age 38, of Ponca, passed away Tuesday, January 10th, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. Services will be at 1 p.m. on Saturday at the Ponca State Park Resource and Education Center with Father Andy Scholm officiating. Visitation will be from 11 in the morning to 1 p.m. that day, also at the State Park with lunch served during that time. More Funeral Home in Ponca is assisting with arrangements. Condolences may be shared at Meyer brochchapels.com. Melissa was born August 6, 1984 in Sioux City to Ralph, Don, Jr., and Laurie Belden, Surber, that's S-U-R-B-E-R. She graduated from Laurel Concord High School in 2003 at Lamar's Beauty College. Melissa married Lee Clarkson October 4, 2008 in Dixon, Nebraska, and the couple had two beautiful children, Ellie and Covey. She worked at Classic Cuts, Cost Cutters, and Salon Volume in Sioux City before becoming a full-time mother. Melissa loved her family, especially her children, and cherished all of the gatherings and time spent with them. She liked to cook and entertain for everyone. She also enjoyed glamping and spending time at the lake. She is survived by her husband, Lee Clarkson of Ponca, children Ellie and Covey, mother and stepfather Lori and Jeff Langley of McCook Lake, South Dakota, father and stepmother Don and Patty Serber of Belden, Nebraska, brothers Ryan Serber of Wayne, Nebraska, Benny Serber of Sergeant Bluff, and Brent Serber of Hartley, Iowa, and many other family members and friends. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Our next obituary, Randall K. Randy Dunlop, 70 years of age, from Sioux City, passed away from this life Monday, January 9th at his home. No services will be held this time. Arrangements are with Waterbury Funeral Services of Sioux City. Randy was born October 15th. 1952 
in Sioux City, the son of Richard and Dorothy Hammerstrom Dunlop. He was the third son of eight children. Randy attended Healan High School and graduated with a degree from Briarcliff College. He worked nights at Zenith to go to school during the day. For over 40 years, Randy worked at Tyson IBP. He started work there because they paid well and had good benefits. He found out he liked the work and the people who worked there, which left him with many lifelong friends. In May of 1980, Randy married Sandra Sandy Schultz. They spent much of their time camping and traveling the country by motorcycle and made it to 30 Sturgis rallies. Randy will be missed at Bear Butte when Randy and Sandra were not camping in Florida, California, Yosemite, and Yellowstone, they would camp locally. They would camp from May until October. Randy did time to run marathons, including the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl. He found time to run mar uh, marathons there. Uh, every spring, Randy would get a call from Art Olson at Honda asking him to put together new motorcycles from the crates for the new season's bikes. He loved to ride motorcycles on his Suzuki along with his Yamaha and Husqvarna. Randy didn't win a lot of trophies, but he did have a lot of fun. In Randy's later years, they got a sidecar unit to tour the country, which they took many trips on. He was an avid Nebraska football fan, and if they did not attend the game, they would drive down to Omaha to watch the game with like-minded fans. Randy is survived by his wife, Sandy, his sister, Margie, and Jerry uh, Gonzale of South Sioux City, five brothers, Richard Dunlop, Mark and Kathy Dunlop, Andrew Dunlop, all of Sioux City, and Robert and Janice Dunlop, and Dan and Shirley Dunlop, both of Waterloo, Iowa, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his grandparents, his parents, and the brother, Greg Dunlop. Our next obituary, Susan K. Hanaklaas, 70 years of age, of Haywarden, passed away Wednesday, January 11th at Hillcrest Healthcare Center in Haywarden, surrounded by her family. Services will be at 11 in the morning on Tuesday at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel in Sioux City. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the service. Interment will be at a later date. Online condolences may be sent to MeyerBrossChapels.com. Susan was born in Sioux City to William and Marion MacArthur on November 2, 1952. She attended school in Sioux City. After high school, she married Harry Ray Hanaklaas on March 17, 1971. They went on to have four sons. She worked in the manufacturing industry for many years obtaining employment at Iowa Beef Packing, Supreme Packing, and Quality Pack Park, excuse me, Quality Park products. Susan loved to crochet in her free time, making many items for family members. She also loved listening to music, with her favorite being Elvis. Spending time with family, especially her grandkids, uh, was one of her greatest joys. Susan was an animal lover as well. Susan is survived by her sons, William of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 
Raymond and Teresa of Lenox, South Dakota, James and Amy of Kingsley, Iowa, and Stephen of Rock Valley, Iowa. A brother, Mark MacArthur of Las Vegas, Nevada, nine grandchildren and 11 great-grandchildren. Susan was preceded in death by her husband, Harry, parents, William and Marion, a brother, Gary, and a sister, Linda. Our next obituary, Charles Charlie A. Knopfler, 69 years of age, passed away Friday, January 13th. Arrangements are pending with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Our next obituary, Richard J. Koch of Hubbard, Nebraska, 75 years of age, passed away Wednesday, December 28th, peacefully at his home. Service will be at 11 a.m. on Friday at Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City with Father Gerald Lease officiating. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery of St. Mary's Church in Hubbard. Visitation with family present will begin at 9 a.m. on Friday at the funeral home prior to the service. Online condolences may be offered to the family at Meyer Bross chapels.com. Richard was born November 6, 1947 in Yankton, South Dakota to Cyril and Felicia Noecker Koch. He graduated from Cedar Catholic High School with the class of 1965. Richard served his country in the Army National Guard from October of 1966 until January 1973 reaching the rank of Sergeant E-5. He married Jackie Snow on November 9, 1968 at Sacred Heart Church in Wynot, Nebraska. The couple has made Hubbard their home since 1979. Richard worked at Tyson for 53 years and has farmed since 1979. Along with farming, Richard enjoyed fishing, camping, and of course his motorcycles. Richard won the World of Wheels in his class in 1976 and 1977 with his first place trike called Wild Thing. And he enjoyed the Sturgis rallies. Above all else, family was most important to Richard, especially his grandchildren. Richard is survived by his wife Jackie, son Shane, and his wife Lori, daughter Sabrina, grandchildren Brendan and J.C. Hammer, Mother Felicia, brothers Maurice and his wife Vicky and Dennis, sisters Pat and her husband Jim Haynes, Mary Lynn Ahrens, and Bonnie and her husband George Thanderup, and many nieces and nephews. Richard was preceded in death by his father and his brother-in-law, Charles Ahrens. Well, I believe we've covered all of the local news in the Sioux City Journal, so we'll turn now to some of the national News, the first item comes to us from the Associated Press uh, and Ukraine. The death toll from a Russian missile strike on an apartment building in the southeastern Ukrainian city of Dunpro rose to 30 on Sunday. The National Emergency Service reported as rescue workers scrambled to reach survivors in the rubble. Emergency crews worked through the frigid night and all day at the multi-story residential building where officials said about 1,700 people lived before Saturday's strike. 
The reported death toll made it the deadliest attack in one place since the September 30th strike in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region, according to the AP, Frontline War Crimes Watch Project. Russia also targeted the capital, Kyiv, and the northeastern city of Kharkiv during a widespread barrage the same day, ending a two-week lull in the airstrikes it has launched against Ukraine's power infrastructure and urban centers almost weekly since October. Russia on Saturday, excuse me, Sunday, acknowledged the missile strikes but did not mention the Dunipro apartment building. Russia has repeatedly denied targeting civilians in the war. Russia fired 33 cruise missiles on Saturday, of which 21 were shot down, according to General Zaliri Zalzuni, the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. The missile that hit the apartment building was a KH-22 launched from Russia's Kursk region, according to the military's Air Force Command, aiding or adding that Ukraine does not have a system capable of intercepting that type of weapon. In Dunpro, workers used a crane as they tried to rescue people trapped on upper floors of the apartment tower. Some residents signaled for help with lights on their mobile phones. Ukrainian President Zelensky reported that at least 73 people were wounded and 39 people had been rescued as of Sunday afternoon. The city government in Dunpro said 43 people were reported missing. Search and rescue operations and the dismantling of dangerous structural elements continue around the clock. We continue to fight for every life, Zelensky said. Ivan Garnuk was in his apartment when the building was hit and said he felt lucky to have survived. He described his shock that the Russians would strike a residential building with no strategic value. There are no military facilities here. There is nothing here, he said. There is no air defense. There are no military bases. It's just civilians, innocent people. Dunpro residents joined rescue workers at the scene to help clear the rubble. Others brought food and warm clothes for those who had lost their homes. This is clearly terrorism, and all this is simply not human, one local, our team, Mizershenko, said as he cleared the rubble. Claiming responsibility for the missile strikes across Ukraine, Russia's defense ministry said Sunday that it had achieved its goal. All designated targets have been hit. The goal of the attack has been achieved, according to a ministry statement posted on Telegram. It said missiles were fired on the military command and control system of Ukraine and related energy facilities, and it did not mention the attack on the Dunpro residential building. On Sunday, Russian forces attacked a residential area in the southern Ukrainian city of Kyrshan. Regional Governor Yaroslav Yashuvik said in a telegram post. According to preliminary information, two people were wounded. Russia's renewed air attacks came as fierce fighting raged in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk province, where the Russian military has claimed it has control of small salt mining town of Soldar. But Ukraine asserts that its troops are still fighting. If the Russian forces win full control of Soldar, it would allow them to inch closer to the larger city of Bakhmut. 
The battle for Bakhmut has raged for months, causing substantial casualties on both sides. With the grinding war nearing the 11-month mark, Britain announced it would deliver tanks to Ukraine, its first donation of such heavy-duty weaponry, although the pledge of 14 Challenger II tanks appeared modest. Ukraine officials expect it will encourage other Western nations to supply more tanks. Sending Challenger II tanks to Ukraine is the beginning of a gear change in the UK's support, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's office said in a statement late on Saturday. A squadron of 14 tanks will go into the country in the coming weeks after the Prime Minister told President Zelensky that the UK would provide additional support to aid Ukraine's land war. Around 30 AS-90s, which are large self-propelled guns operated by five gunners, are expected to follow. Sunak is hoping other Western allies follow suit as part of a coordinated effort on the international front to boost support for Ukraine in the lead-up to the one-year anniversary of the invasion next month. The UK Defense Secretary plans to travel to Estonia and Germany this week to work with NATO allies and the Foreign Secretary is scheduled to visit the United States and Canada to discuss closer coordination. And another story from the Associated Press, this one out of Detroit. The head of the National Transportation Safety Board has expressed concern about the safety risk that heavy electric vehicles pose if they collide with lighter vehicles. The official, Jennifer Holmendy, raised the issue in a speech January 11th in, the Washington, uh, in Washington to the Transportation Research Board. She noted, by way of example, that an electric General Motors Corporation Hummer weighs about 9,000 pounds, with a battery pack alone that weighs nearly 3,000 pounds, roughly the entire weight of a typical Honda Civic. She said, I am concerned about the increased risk of severe injury and death for all road users from heavier curb weights and increasing size, power, and performance of vehicles on our roads, including electric vehicles, Holmendy said in remarks prepared for the group. The extra weight that electronic vehicles uh, typically carry stems from the outsized mass of their batteries. To achieve 300 or more miles of range per charge from electric batteries, uh, they have to weigh thousands of pounds. Some battery chemistries being developed have the potential to pack more energy into less mass. But for now, there's a mismatch in weight between electric vehicles and smaller internal combustion vehicles. Electric vehicles also deliver instant power to their wheels, making them accelerate faster in most cases than most gasoline-powered cars, trucks, and SUVs. Holmendy said she was encouraged by the Biden administration plans to phase out carbon emissions from vehicles to deal with climate crisis, but she said she still worries about safety risks resulting from a proliferation of electronic vehicles on roads and highways. We have to be careful that we are not also creating unintended consequences more death on our roads, she said. Safety, especially when it comes to new transportation policies and new technologies, cannot be overlooked. Holmendy noted that Ford F-150 Lightning EV pickups is 
2,000 to 3,000 pounds heavier than the same model combustion versions. The Mustang Mach-E electric SUV and the Volvo XC40 EV, she said, are roughly 33% heavier than their gasoline counterparts. That has a significant impact on safety for all road users, Holmendee said. The NTSB investigates transportation crashes, but has no authority to make regulation. For vehicles, such authority rests largely with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Even apart from EVs, the nation's roads are crowded with heavy vehicles, thanks to a decades-long boom in sales of larger cars, trucks, and SUVs, and that has led to extreme mismatches and collisions with smaller vehicles. But electric vehicles are typically much heavier than even the largest trucks and SUVs that are powered by gasoline or diesel. Michael Brooks, executive director of the nonprofit Center for Auto Safety, has said he, too, is concerned about the weight of EVs because buyers seem to be demanding a range of 300 or more miles per charge, requiring heavy batteries. Setting up a charging network to accommodate that may be a mistake from a safety perspective, Brooks said. These bigger, heavier batteries are going to cause more damage, he said. It's a simple matter of mass and speed. Brooks said he knows of little research done on safety risks of increasing vehicle weights. In 2011, the National Bureau of Economic Research published a paper that said, being hit by a vehicle with an added 1,000 pounds increases by 47% the probability of being killed in a crash. He points out that electric vehicles have a very high horsepower rating, allowing them to accelerate quickly, even in crowded urban areas. People are not trained to handle that type of acceleration. It's just not something that drivers are used to doing, Brooks said. Also, many newer electric SUVs are tall with limited visibility. That poses a risk to pedestrians or drivers of smaller vehicles, he said. Sales of new electric vehicles in the U.S. rose nearly 65% last year to 800,000, about 5.8% of all new vehicle sales. The Biden administration has set a goal of EVs reaching 50% of new vehicle sales by 2030, and they are offering tax credits of up to $7,500 to get there. The consulting firm LMC Automotive has made a more modest prediction. It expects EVs to make it up to one-third of new vehicle market by 2030. And another story from the Associated Press. This one comes to us from Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. A New Jersey home where smoke had been reported exploded with volunteer firefighters inside, injuring five of them and sending two to a hospital for treatment of burns, according to authorities. The Pompton Lakes Volunteer Fire Department in Passaic County, New Jersey, said on its Facebook page that crews were dispatched at about 2.15 in the morning on Saturday after a police sergeant reported smelling smoke coming from the home. Officials said members of the department entered the home to try to find the source of the smoke and were using a thermal imaging camera when the home literally exploded, injuring some members of the Manning uh, injuring some members that were manning the hose line at the back of the home and partially trapping others inside the basement of the home. All were able to get out on their own. Two were sent to the St. Barnabas Hospital where they were treated for burns and released. 
Three others were treated for minor injuries at the scene. Police also evacuated the lone resident who told authorities he did not know how the blaze had started. I thought we were all going to have six fatalities. I really did. Pompton Lakes Fire Chief Jason Eckers told the NorthJerseyNews.com. They managed to climb out of the basement with compromised stairs. They all helped each other out. They came out one at a time and were at the back door just feeding them out one at a time. Officials said the blast caused part of the house to collapse and significant fire resulted. Fire crews from several departments got the flames under control by 3.30 in the morning. A state fire marshal and public service electric gas companies were investigating. Olivia Alvarez, age 17, told NorthJerseyNews.com that she was looking out the window from her second floor bedroom across the street when she saw smoke coming from the rear of the home and thought it was a car or something. A short time later, she just saw it all explode, she said. The whole house lifted off the ground and then hit the ground again and collapsed. The entire house in one piece, she said. Our next story comes to us from QC Roll Call. Uh, the dateline is Washington. A recently enacted income supplement for low-ranking U.S. troops put in place primarily to alleviate food insecurity in the military ranks will help fewer than 1% of the estimated sources of thousands of hungry U.S. military families, according to the Pentagon. That statistic, which has not been previously reported, suggests Congress has a lot more work to do to ensure service members who put their lives on the line for our country don't also have to sacrifice food for themselves and their families, according to experts. Fully 24% of active duty service members recently experienced low food security, meaning they sometimes lacked quality meals, according to the latest Pentagon survey of troops in late 2020 and early 2021, before the recent inflation surge. Of those, 10% periodically experienced very low food security, meaning they sometimes ate less at mealtime, they missed meals entirely, or they lost weight due to inadequate food intake in the previous year. Those percentages suggest that 286,000 active duty service members have had some level of food insecurity of late, and nearly 120,000 have sometimes gone hungry recently due to a lack of food, according to senators on the Armed Services Committee. The figures do not count family members of those active duty personnel nor are reservists and their family members included in the tally. To address this problem, Congress established a basic needs allowance in the Fiscal 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA, for lower income service members. Starting this month, the provision would boost their pay to ensure it is at least 130% of the poverty line for their area. The fiscal 2023 NDAA, enacted late last month, will increase the percentage to 150%, and the law gives Defense Department leaders discretion to pay up to 200% in limited circumstances. 
However, only about 2,400 service members will be helped by the basic needs allowance that just went into effect, a Defense Department spokesman told QC Roll Call. That figure represents just eight-tenths of the estimated 286 active duty service members who reported low or very low food security. Moreover, even if only the nearly 120,000 troops with very low food security are considered, 2,400 troops is still only 2% of that total. And even if the Pentagon survey results overstate the number of service members with low or very low food security by a factor of 10, the basic needs allowance still would only help about 8% of the soldiers. The reason so few troops will be helped has to do with the narrow way the law and implementing regulation were written, according to military family advocates and some lawmakers. The basic needs allowance will cost $12 million in fiscal 2023, according to the defense spending law enacted last month. That amount is one one-thousandth of a percent of the $858 billion national defense budget. Experts and lawmakers say more should be done to help those in need. Representative Sarah Jacobs, a Democrat from California, who serves on the House Armed Services Committee, is one of a block of lawmakers looking to ensure the basic needs allowance and other forms of support reach more military families who need it. This crisis isn't only a stain on our country's conscience, but also harms our military readiness, recruitment, and morale, Jacobs said. And that brings us to the conclusion of reading the Suicidal Journal for this Monday, January 16th, 2023. Your reader today has been Dave Sowerman. Thank you for listening to this IRS program. Mm-hmm.